The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 39, 4-8. Lord, make me aware of my end and the number of my days, so that I will know how short-lived I am. In fact, you have made my days just inches long, and my lifespan is as nothing to you. Yes, every human being stands as only a vapor. Yes, a a person goes about like a mere shadow. Indeed, they rush around in vain, gathering possessions without knowing who will get them. Now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Rescue me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the taunt of fools. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Jenny. Good morning, and I want to thank you all for the kind, thoughtful, undeserved cards you sent me during my sabbatical. I'm very, very grateful and feel overwhelmed by your your generosity and your words. Thank you so much for that. The Psalms are one of the favorite books of the Bible for every Christian. I feel certain of that. Um, But they're often hard to understand, harder than we even think sometimes. Uh, One thing is that we're asking ourselves when we read so many of the Psalms, do I get to think that way? Do I get to pray that prayer? Do I get to hate God's enemies? And do I get to complain to God and ask, how long, O Lord, and things like that? Let me just suggest is that one of the keys to understanding and appreciating the Psalms is to understand that their human author, David, or any other psalmist, is understood to be very, very close to the Lord. He pursued God like no one else. Or to use an Old Testament concept, the psalmist truly fears God or is in right relationship to God in the fullest way. To use New Testament terms, the psalmist is a mature Christian. He's someone who seeks, truly seeks after the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And he does does that first. And so the psalmist can complain to God and can defend his own righteousness even as a sinner and call for the destruction of enemies, and and ask for the desires of his heart. In other words, one of the reasons why we struggle with the Psalms, we like them, but we struggle to say, can I say that, is because we really have a lot of catching up to do to David. But people who are in intimate relationship with God speak to him that way. That's what we're trying to do. Now look, you guys, the mature believer is never perfect. Mature believers sin, even sometimes badly. And so mature believers are disciplined by their father to become even more mature. But they always meet their transgressions with confession and repentance. They always go back to the God who's full of grace and mercy and keeps his promises and and hears their prayers. So now look, this morning, I want to challenge you. It's going to be a challenging thing to say. I think it's coming from Psalm 39. I mean to discomfort you. I also mean, though, to encourage you and exhort you. So let that happen and let the scripture speak, if you will. I want to say three things here. I want want you to think about your words. I want you to think about your words and so remind you to guard your words. I want you to think again about the shortness of life. And so value your time. And when suffering some trial, I want you to think about how to respond to discipline. 
Think about those three things this morning. So first of all, guard your words. Verse 1 says, I said, I will guard my way so that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle as long as the wicked are in my presence. I was speechless and quiet. I kept silence even from speaking good. And my pain intensified. Do you live with a verbal processor? I do. My brilliant and beautiful wife is a verbal processor. She's always thinking out loud. Verbal processors, what they're doing is they're saying things out loud as if when they speak them, they're written on a screen, an invisible screen in front of them, and they're sort of reading the thing and saying like, do I believe that? Is that really a good idea? And that's just how they process. They don't do it internally like I do, who says nothing, almost nothing at home. My wife says everything at home. Now, there's only a 75% chance that my wife is actually going to follow through on what she said, but she's thinking out loud. I kid you not, on Thursday of this week, while she's cleaning up the house, for guests arriving, I looked over in the kitchen and saw her, heard her say this, literally, this is verbatim. I'm going to do a, a first thing, and then a second thing, and then a third thing. <laughs> That's all. I had no idea what they were, but she was saying them out loud, and that helped her in her mind. Now, David says, I have something to say. Hey, everybody, I have something to say. I'm going to stop saying things. David says what's on his mind, and we're grateful because now we have the Psalms. He speaks what we're afraid to say. Here David says this, I'm in pain and distress, but I'm afraid of complaining to God. I'm afraid that I may say something in front of my enemies that will make God look bad, or maybe it'll make me look like a failure. Don't forget that there's always, and I need to remember this, there's always an audience for our words. There's always the audience of, of my, own, my own domain, my own family, my, my physical family and my church family. They're hearing what I say. And then those who are opposed to God, they hear what I say. And then there's the spiritual realm, the spiritual uh, persons in this universe who are invisible to us. They're also listening. Um, so I'm going to, he says, I'm going to put a muzzle on my mouth and not speak. But I can only do this for so long. When I was growing in Christ as a, uh, I think it was in college time. I remember, I remember being as growing in Christ and trying to grow in holiness. I was so frustrated with the sins of my mouth that I, I thought to myself, Lord, before I sin with my mouth, would you literally physically please punch me in the mouth? You know, it, it would have been an, an interesting thing to have that happen. A friend would just look over and suddenly I've got a cut lip and blood's pouring out. And I would say, like, well, I was about to sin with my mouth and the Lord punched me. And I, I said, I'll be, I'm glad that he did that because I, I, I'm so sick of not being able to control my mouth. Now, God doesn't do that and he won't do that. Don't expect a punch in the mouth. But boy, it sure seems effective, doesn't it? When I was in first grade, Mrs. Buning at Bannockburn Elementary, put a bar of soap in a student's mouth. I don't know what the boy said. I don't remember that at all, but I remember seeing the boy. I remember that boy leaning over and a gigantic chunk of soap in his mouth, and it was just, it just stuck there, and he just had to, had to deal with it. Now, this is the, I know that's primitive, but this is the uh, 60s, and we did things like that back then. Um, but it did put the fear in me about what I was saying, pretty much I was the type of guy that didn't say not one single word, but I was glad about that because I don't want to eat soap. 
When I was a high school teacher, I had many students I want to put a muzzle on their mouth. Why can't you keep quiet? I would say literally out loud, Eddie, just because you have a thought in your head doesn't mean you have to say it out loud. Be quiet. But I need a muzzle for my mouth. What percentage of the sins I commit any day or week are sins of my mouth? What do you think? A huge percentage. A muzzle on my mouth would probably reduce my sinning by 50%. Just for some reason, I just took a sharp knife and just cut my tongue out. I feel like I would become a holier person. And I almost mean that seriously. What did Apostle James say? If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect or a mature man, able also to bridle his whole body. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. So as regarding our words, let me suggest a couple things here. Here's the first thing. Consider, please just consider how much we sin with our words. Give it some thought. Imagine fasting from speaking for 24 hours. Just like, give it a try. A short vow of silence. Now, if you've ever fasted from food before, you know exactly what happens. This is what happens. Just at exactly the predictable hours, your body screams out to you, I'm hungry. And without the promise to yourself about fasting, then what you do is what all of us do. Well, I'm going to the refrigerator. And teenagers do it a billion times. Or you go to the cupboard. If you're in line at some th checkout thing, like I, I just heard the cry to be hungry. Well, there's a candy bar and a long row of candy bars. I get that too. And, and, and you just simply listen to your body constantly. That's what you do with fasting. Have you ever fasted from social media before? or your phone, you could try it. You could feel the misery and learn how strong the pull is to you. So when you, when you fast from speaking, if you could do that, and I know that what most of you are saying, well, I, I could never fast for 24 hours from speaking because it's a part of my job and I got my kids and blah, 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 and I understand, okay? But if you did, you would, you would begin to feel like, oh man, I, I speak without thinking all the time. It's how automatic it is. What if every day before bed we received a transcript of literally every word we say that day? At 10, let's say 10 p.m., you hear a ping on your phone, and you get a transcript every day of every single word you said. Or maybe it's, it's a Saturday night at the end of the week, and you have to read that. <laughs> did I say that? I can't believe I said that. How did that help anyone? I can't believe how much I complain in a day. I can't believe how critical I am. That's just plain gossip. I can't believe how many words I waste. Am I that boring? I didn't give one Bible verse to anyone the whole week. There's no encouraging words here. Would you be surprised at the end of your life how much you have said that's neither good nor bad, but just trivial and unnecessary? Jesus said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. I just want you this, this week to think about how often we sin just with our tongue, all right? And then 
a second thing to think about. Recognize that complaining actually just goes back to God. Complaining is essentially always about God, actually, if you think about it, like it or not. You should think this way. I think, don't say, I'm not complaining about you, God. I'm complaining about the situation that I'm in. I'm not complaining about you, God. It's just this traffic that I'm in, Fuquay traffic. I'm not complaining about you, God. I would never do that. It's just the leaders of my country. I'm not complaining about you, God. It's just the economy I'm complaining about. I'm not complaining about you, God. It's just my job, my spouse, my children, my church, my health, and so on. Complaining comes close to not recognizing the sovereign will of God in every single moment, every single thing of your life. God is sovereign over that. Yes, Fuquay traffic, God put you, ordained that you would be in there. So when you're complaining about it, think again about what complaining in a way actually is. Now, we may justly complain about the hard circumstances of life, but first, let's just recognize the sovereignty of God in your situation. It's not an accident. It does have a purpose. It does have a solution. And here's the third thing. Just the thing about quietness. Quietness helps us hear the Holy Spirit. Holding back your words of judgment or criticism may give the Spirit time to give you a better perspective on someone else's failure. That is to say, before you criticize someone for failure, maybe if you just stop and were quiet for a while, maybe the Holy Spirit would give you a better perspective about what's going on in that person's life. Or even perspective on your own failure, like, what you know what, maybe you also have the same sort of problem. Remember that Paul perceived his thorn in the flesh as something given to him to keep him from being conceited. The scriptures don't say that Paul was conceited. The scripture says that the thorn in the flesh for which he prayed three times and did not get an answer was to keep him from being conceited. If, he's, if Paul practices quietness and the Holy Spirit can explain that to him, God's discipline in Paul's life can be understood, but you've got to be quiet and hear. Refraining from speaking may allow the Spirit to reveal more clearly why you are being disciplined or why you're suffering and how all of this brings about the goodwill and glory of God. We don't likely hear the Spirit well because we don't practice quietness and biblical meditation. The barrage of constant images and constant voices in our ears is drowning out the Spirit, I fear. And He may be trying to tell you why some things are happening. So we have to learn to listen to the Spirit, but Here's a second thing to think about from the psalm. Value your time. Verse 3, my heart grew hot within me. As I mused, a fire burned. I spoke with my tongue. Lord, make me aware of my end and the number of my days so that I will know how short-lived I am. In fact, you've made my days just inches long. And my lifespan is as nothing to you. Yes, every human being stands only as a vapor. Yes, a person goes about like a mere shadow. Indeed, they rush around in vain, gathering possessions without knowing who will get them. David says, I was going to keep my mouth shut and endure this punishment from God, but then I became overwhelmed with something. David says, I became overwhelmed with the sense that, am I going to be stuck under the disciplining hand of the Lord? Am I going to be, st- I going to be stuck with suffering that God is trying to teach me some? 
and my life is so short. He's aware of that. Elton John sang that Marilyn Monroe, dead at age 36, was a what? Remember the song? A candle in the wind. That's, that's almost biblical, you guys. Because James 4.14 says, what's your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Job said, man who was born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. We all have all these beautiful little babies that are being born to us this year. And I, I see them when they're really, really young and they don't look like flowers. You love them and you think they're beautiful. But the thing is, is that, that the Bible just said like that it's a flower that just is here for a little while. So when I, when I see little babies, and I'm being serious about this, I do think this, this child's life will pass by so fast. They may turn out, they may live to be 90 or 95. It's still going to be a blink. I, I think ahead like that, and I think we ought to too. Everyone universally agrees that time is short, life is short. We are, we, everybody says that. Cynical people respond with concluding that life is just absurd. We're an accident of evolution. Here for a very short time, we've got no meaning, and then we just disappear. Everyone becomes compost. That's it. Many agree with that, but think that the proper response is to have as much fun as you can until you die. Or do as much good as you can. You have a short life. We're only here for a little while. Do, do as much good as you can. The problem with that one, that is, if, if this is the only life, and after death we cease to exist, then I can't figure out any reason why you should do good. Why? For what reason? It doesn't matter. You see, we get conflicting messages. Live life with gusto. Carpe diem. Seize the day. Live so you have no regrets. Make a bucket list of all the things you want to do and see before you die. Others say, I'm counting down the years to retirement so I can go fishing every day, or just relax at the beach for the rest of my life. Some respond to the shortness of life with, with this arduous effort to stay alive as long as possible. Oh, diet, exercise, vitamins, medicine, uh, meditation, crossword puzzles, whatever it is you're doing. I'm just trying to stay alive as long as I can. You know what? Almost everyone copes with the shortness of life by Simply avoiding thinking about it. Stay distracted with something so you don't have to think about the fact of dying. Even Christians do this. It's so hard, I don't even want to think about it. But the shortness of life calls for deep reflection and response. So here's some suggestions for you. Understand that life is a stewardship from God. Jesus once gave a brilliant and highly unusual parable in the Gospel of Luke about Christian stewardship and remembering the shortness of life. It's commonly called the parable of the unjust steward or the parable of the dishonest manager. And if I may be allowed to paraphrase, Jesus says, there was a rich man who had a manager or an accountant who kept his books, but he got caught cheating or as Jesus says very carefully, wasting the rich man's possessions. And that, that, of course, is true because your life is not your life. It was given to you. That's why it's somebody else's life. 
the manager said to himself, um, well, I mean, rather the, the rich man said, like, you're, you're fired. You're, you're fired. You're done. I mean, you're re- literally almost done with life now. You'll never have another job. But before you go, bring the books back. We're going to look them over. And the manager says to himself, I got to think fast. Matter of fact, Jesus in his parable says he did these things quickly. I got to prepare for my new future or my future is going to destroy me. Because I'm not strong enough to work with my hands and because I'm ashamed to beg, I've got to do something so that when I'm kicked out of the company, other people will receive me and I'll have some sort of a job or I'll be just accepted and liked and maybe fed. So he quickly gathers the people that owe his boss, the rich man, money. He sets them all down and says, quickly, how much do you owe my, my boss? How much oil do you owe him? 100 gallons, the person says. Okay, I'm cutting that by 50%. How much do you owe? 100 barrels of wheat. Okay, I'm cutting that by 20%. And he goes through every single one of them. And he, then he, he just forms this list of people that are so grateful. Like, I don't have to pay my full bill. That's a good thing. I, I, what I have to pay is, is a lot less. I, I like this guy. Jesus says that when the rich man found out about this, he actually commended the unjust account because he said, this guy is really shrewd and clever. As fast as he could, he prepared for his future. And Jesus said, sometimes, you guys, the disciples who he's talking to, the children of this world do a better job of preparing for the future than the children of light, his disciples. That is, living for money is total foolishness. But if you think that is all to life, then working hard for the money while you have the chance and while you have the strength is the smart thing to do. What should we do if there is an accounting of our life after our life? What if we have to stand before the judgment seat and give an account of what we've done in our mortal bodies? What if that's true? And it is. What if we're accountable for how we steward God's wealth given to us? See, you want to, be, you want to prepare now for the future so that you'll be welcomed by people of God's eternal kingdom who will say of you, I'm here because of the way you lived your life. I'm here because of what you told me, how you served me, or the money you gave. You've got to do that now to prepare for that in the future, Christian. Whatever your age and your gifts and talents, your energy levels, your intellect and education, your opportunities, God has ordained that specifically for you. That's your stewardship. It's not your money. It's not your brains. It's not your talents and your skills. It's not your time. It's not your energy. It all belongs to God. And he will give an accounting for it. Do this too, please. Understand his sovereign ordaining of your days. And trying to think about the shortness of life, don't forget that God has ordained the number of days on this earth. David said, you've made my days inches long. Friends, the, the, the date of your death is determined by God already. As significant as genetics and lifestyles and medicine are, they have no effect on what God has determined for you. 
The response is not despair, but earnest and intentional living. So let's see, if you have children, it is ordained that you only have around 18 years of life-shaping influence on your child. What should you do in those 18 years? What should you do in those 18 years when that's all you have? Some of you are late to the race and you have less than 18 years. That's, that's just the way it is, you guys. That's what God has ordained. Get busy, parents. Hey, think about something, would you? Pretend that your cell phone cannot be recharged anymore and it cannot be replaced. You look on it and you have four more hours of life on your phone. Do you understand what I'm saying? Forever. Four more hours. What are you going to do with your phone? Scroll through Facebook? Instagram? Just look at pictures? That's what you do for the next four hours? Of, or are you going to do something with your phone that counts for eternity? What about seeing also from God's perspective? David says, my lifespan is, is nothing to you. So if you compare the, the duration of human life to our eternal God, it almost seems like you don't exist. Well, you do, but he's created us and created us for eternity. Yet he's only given us a short time to accomplish his mission on this ver version of the earth. There is the new heaven and earth to come, but but there's just a limited amount of time on this version of the earth. Right? You're given 24 hours every day just like everyone else. You can't say I don't have enough time or I need more time. You just have 24 hours. That's what everybody does. One third of that, one third of every 24 hours is spent with your eyes closed in a semi-conscious state called sleep. That means... If you die at 75, you spent 25 years with your eyes closed in a semi-conscious state. Now, you have to sleep. The best working years, you know, that 40 years of, of working, you, know, you do that, you, 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 you must work. The best years of your life are in that stage right there, not for playing, but for working. And then you get weak and old and all that kind of stuff. Listen to me. Evaluate life from God's perspective. Apostle Paul said, Ephesians 5.15, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. And here's one more thing I think you, we could all do from the psalm here. Pray to understand the shortness of life. Just ask God for help with this. He prays, Lord, make me aware of my end and the number of my days so that I will know how short-lived I am. Verse four, teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom, the Bible says. Learn every lesson of life on this earth that reminds you of the shortness of life. Pay attention so that it's coming to you. Yes, that's right, life is short. Yes, life is short. I've got work to do. As a school teacher for over 20 years, in my other life here, I've learned over the years that many of my students have died. And that was something I never thought would happen, that I would outlive my own students. But I've had only a couple that have died while they're my student currently. And the last one was Victoria. 
six-period class. She's a sweet 17-year-old girl, very, very average student, very quiet, and I just said the last thing, the last thing I said to Victoria is, Victoria, get your homework done. And three hours later, she was dead. You imagine that was the last thing that I said? Well, that's what teachers are supposed to say. But it makes you stop and think, what am I saying to people? Can I say something a little bit more important than what I'm often saying to people? Ask God to painfully reveal to you all the ways you waste time. Ask him to show you how you waste money on so many temporal things. Ask him to show you the opportunities that we continually miss. What's your response to the shortness of life? And what, what should the response be, you guys? If you're not in right relationship with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're not in right relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, then you, you better believe what I'm saying. Life is short and eternity is very, very long. Today is the day of salvation. Well, the psalmist is distressed that in the shortness of life, he may be stuck under the discipline of the Lord for the rest of his life. And that's what made him think like, I, I, my life is so short, Lord. You, will you please, can I be in your favors again? Will I have to be disciplined for the rest of my life? He says, I want my joy with God restored. So he cries out to the Lord, and this is what he prays in verse 8, rescue me from all my transgressions. That's confession. Do not make me the taunt of fools. I'm speechless. I do not open my mouth because of what you've done. Remove your torment from me because of the force of your hand, I am finished. You discipline a person, Lord. You discipline a person with punishment for iniquity, consuming like a moth what is precious to him. Yes, every human being is only a vapor. So lastly, I want you to think about how to respond to discipline. So much to be said about this subject. But think about these things. There's no infallible way that I know of to know for sure why God has, has instigated and ordained a certain uh, trial that you're going through, the struggles of life, pain. Is it my sin? Am I deliberately ignoring repentance from some sin? Is he testing or growing my faith? Is he growing my endurance or patience? Or is this just what it is to live in a fallen world, you know, a world that has disease and crime and war and layoffs and economic recessions? Is that just all it is? I don't know the answers to those questions, but I see some things that we ought to do. For instance, examine yourself with the mirror of God's word. Do some self-examination when you're undergoing discipline or trials. Lamentations 3.40 says, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Paul said to the Corinthians, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. As we get ready to take the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes, he said, before taking the Lord's Supper, let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. He said to the Galatians, don't deceive yourselves, but let each one test his own work. Hopefully we pray with the psalmist in 139, search me, O God, and, and know my heart and try me and know my thoughts. Do you want some help about examining yourself correctly so you, so you get it correctly? The longer you stay in God's word, whether that's your own personal devotions or your, or your daily reading, or whether that's any church community group that we have here at Redeemer, 
or discipleship groups or men's breakfasts or every ladies' gathering or at Reborn for our teenagers, the more you will see yourself in light of God's assessment of you. Stay in the word, be around the word, and then slowly but surely you see how God sees you more and more clearly and with less and less error. And that's, that, that's a great way to grow in Christ and to deal with discipline. Here's another thing to do. Practice the lifelong habit of daily confession of sin as David did. I have a theory that we're less and less conscious of our sins because we have intentionally or maybe unintentionally filled our lives with a lot of noise and distraction. Just touched on this a few minutes ago. In the 21st century, the Holy Spirit now has to compete. Imagine that. The Holy Spirit's got to compete with cell phones, laptops and social media and earbuds. How can you confess what you don't know? How can you know what you can't hear? Quietness, getting rid of distractions can help us to hear the Holy Spirit. And then think about this, exercise faith that discipline of any kind is coming from a sovereign, good, loving Father. And you have to exercise faith in it because when you're being disciplined, it's so painful, doubts creep in almost immediately. Am I loved by God? Does he know about this? Is he mad at me? Look at Hebrews 12, 7. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. So then remember this, the goal of all discipline and trials of faith is sharing in God's holiness. It's transformation into the image of Christ, God's great goal. Do you see now the horror of the cross of Christ? Jesus, God's perfect, holy, sinless son, became sin for us. Jesus felt the wrath of God's righteous anger over sin on himself. Maybe a school teacher walks into the classroom and discovers that her grade book has been stolen. She says, all right, who took my grade book? Not gonna answer that question? All right, I'm punishing all of you. All the children get upset, maybe except for one, say, oh, that's not fair. Why should the innocent be punished for one person's guilt? It's a good question. Jesus suffered for other people's sins and did that at the hands of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, even as Jesus is equal and always to them. It's Isaiah the prophet who says it so well of Jesus Messiah, the servant of God. He was smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father. He submitted without arguing to the will of God. Even to death on a cross he did not deserve. Peter said that Jesus suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Paul said, this is the will of God, your sanctification. If you're ever struggling to know the will of God, I can flat out tell you, it's in the Bible, this is the will of God, your sanctification. He's trying to make you more and more holy. So be more and more holy. What does God get from such astounding love for us? Well, radical transformation for radical relationship. By making us righteous in Christ, God is transforming us into the likeness of Christ. And discipline is a part of the process of transformation. Finally, just see how Psalm 39 ends, would you? Verse 12, hear my prayer, Lord, and listen to my cry for help and and do not be silent at my tears, for I'm here with you as an alien, a temporary resident like all my ancestors. Turn your angry gaze from me so that I may be cheered up before I die and I'm gone. The psalmist says he feels estranged from God. I might as well be wandering in the wilderness. I might as well be a captive in another country. When under discipline, he feels like an alien feels. You know, not at home, no friends, no family. He says, I feel outside of God's tender care. Christians often say, I don't feel close to the Lord anymore. Have you ever heard someone say that before? Have you ever said that? Have you ever asked someone, can I just ask you this, Christian? Have you ever felt closer to the Lord at a previous time than you do right now? What do they mean by that if they say yes? And how did that happen? But we feel that way often. Do you feel that way today? Do you feel estranged from God? You say, I want to be closer to God. I feel like I'm not close to God. I want to have my joy back again. Do you feel like his hand of discipline is too hard on you? Now listen to this. I don't have any quick and easy answers to that. I have what Psalm 39 says, which I want you to see. The psalmist says, hear my prayer, listen to my crying, respond to my tears. The Jewish rabbi said there's three levels of supplication to God. Praying, crying, and tears. Tears don't have any words, it's just, just tears. And they said tears were the most eloquent words to God. Tears always, they said, always opens up the gates to God. You may need to be more silent around people, but don't be silent to God. Redeemer, friends, pray, cry, plead, please, to know and understand the Lord more. Just literally get on your knees literally bow down, weep before the Lord and cry out to him. One thing I want you to see that Psalm 39, though, is not the end of the matter. For the great Psalm 40 intentionally follows. I waited patiently for the Lord and he turned to me and heard my cry for help. He brought me up from the desolate pit, 
out of the muddy clay and set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He will put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see, see and fear, and they will trust in the Lord. So part of the answer is next week, Psalm 40. Would you pray with me? Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquaverina, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.